Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists discovered a new human organ, and it could be the biggest human organ. At least that's what a team of doctors from NYU's Langone School of Medicine uh, found. They call it the interstitium. They discovered it using probe-based confocal laser endomicroscopy, which is a revolutionary new form of microscopy. And what's cool is they were able to look in living tissue instead of dead tissue, and they figured out there are these fluid-filled channels all over your body, and it's a passageway for lymphatic fluid and other fluids. And this discovery probably helps to explain the effectiveness of Eastern medicine or traditional Chinese medicine and probably how cancer metastasizes at least one of the pathways. This new organ, if it is such a thing, lines the layers beneath your skin, digestive tract, lungs, urinary system, and muscles. Scientists aren't officially classifying it as an organ because there needs to be consensus. And for scientists to get consensus, it usually takes three generations of dead scientists before they all agree, at which point it just becomes obvious. At least that's been my experience. And since I want to be around for three generations to watch the scientists die who don't do anti-aging like I am, well, hey, that's okay. I'd rather watch them live, but hey, that's just me. Anyway, um, I think that this new discovery is going to help us have a better understanding of Eastern and Western medicine, how they work together. And speaking of that, as of 2015, 60% of the people on the planet, like you and me, use a form of Eastern medicine or TCM, like acupuncture, moxibustion, herbal medicine, tunai, dietary therapy, tai chi, qigong, and yoga, according to a recent study. So... Given that 20 years ago, all these were mumbo-jumbo BS that had no scientific backing, except that, well, they kind of worked clinically. Uh, now we're figuring out there really is some cool stuff going on. doesn't mean all of it works and doesn't mean you know when and where and why and how it works, but that's what science is for. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. All right, enough about that because I'm super excited about today's guest. Today's guest is Dr. Divya Chander, who's a physician, a neuroscientist, and a futurist who studied at a few places like Harvard. Uh, UCSD, UCSF, and the Salk Institute. And she's laughing at the way I pronounce that. Uh, I can say that because I went to Wharton and we have to make fun of HBS. It's just like, it's just kind of how it works. She is also currently the faculty chair in neuroscience and medicine at Singularity University. And if you've heard my interviews with my dear friend, Peter Diamandis, talking about the future and about abundance and things like that, um, he is the founder of Singularity, and I am also an adjunct faculty member there, although that means I've only given a couple lectures over the last while. But Singularity University has changed a lot of entrepreneurs' lives, I know. It's really a cool thing. She's also a visiting scholar in the Stanford Department of Medicine, or at least was, and served in the Stanford School of Medicine Anesthesiology Department for eight years, and has given a fantastic TED Talk about consciousness, brainwaves, and we're going to talk about hacking humans, becoming robots, uploading your consciousness, 
and whatever else someone who can knock you out for a living would actually do. Divya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, just uh, just to um, make sure everybody understands, I am the faculty chair in neuroscience, but just faculty medicine. My dear friend Daniel Kraft is the faculty oh, chair of medicine. I misread that. I also am that's okay. <laughs> now, Divya, you studied optogenetic technology, looking at light activated ion channels inserted in DNA to study sleep and consciousness in brains. Why did you do that? <sighs> because. Right now, it's really hard to selectively stimulate or silence certain kinds of neural networks. And with optogenetics, you can actually do that. So you can actually target your ion channels for the kinds of neurons or the kind of neural networks you want. And then you can implant fiber optics into brains, turn on lights, and actually turn these networks on or completely silence them. And it's reversible. And that was something we were never able to do in the past because we used electrodes. And when you get put electricity into the brain, you get this spherical electric field and it kind of stimulates everything around it. So uh, you don't really have any selective control. So, so this was like a, a new thing about five to seven years ago. It became really huge. Um, and I think it's going to revolutionize neuroscience. One of the first uses of this that I'm aware of was in rats where they looked at the parts of the rats, of male rats' brains uh, for violence and sex and found that they lit up the same way, but that if the rats had sex, I think they were less violent. Um, th there was a very interesting connection between an overlap of the parts of the brain. You know the study I'm talking about? Um, I know parts of it. I'm not a uh, social neuroscience researcher, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, optogenetics has been used, I think, to dissect a lot of amazing neural networks, and it's now one of the most common tools in use in all of neuroscience. Now, neuroscientists are particularly cliquish, it sounds like. Like, I'm not a social neuroscientist. I'm an anti-social neuroscientist. Uh, not really. But I, I'm asking that for a reason, because one of the reasons that, that I, I created the biohacking community, I wanted to bring together all these disparate things. You wouldn't have anesthesiologists talking to sports trainers, talking to astronauts. Oh, I forgot to mention, by the way, you're like a finalist for astronaut training right now too, right? <laughs> I was, okay, so in 2004, I was a finalist for astronaut selection and actually that's where Daniel Kraft and I met. We were in the oh. same exact group of 19 interviewing together. Um, <clears throat> I am still in that, the highly selectable pool and um, so every time there's a new call for astronauts, they, they ping me and I reapply. We'll see. Doesn't happen. I'll go up with private space. Nice. I, I love <laughs> it. And Anusha Ansari has been on the show, who is the first mm -hmm. private uh, female astronaut, which was super cool. In fact, yeah. we just saw her this last weekend at the XPRIZE, uh, XPRIZE Visioneering Summit, where we're uh, helping to figure out how to solve some of the world's biggest problems. And uh, you gave a talk there. That was awesome. That's how we connected. Mm. On this level. Yeah. I, I, uh, we should open space up for everyone. That's just oh, no good we, we totally yeah. will. We're gonna have to hack <laughs> some. We're gonna have to hack our own biology to do that at scale. But that's a, that's a later down the interview question. Yeah. But, but the first one was neuroscientists probably have hard enough time talking to other neuroscientists and other neuroscientist fields, much less the anti aging crowd looking at stem cells, much less all these other uh, you know acupuncture experts and things like that. What are you doing, given that you are pretty cross platform? What you do to look at consciousness and to bring together all these well, social neuroscientists, you know, the, 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 the other parts of neuroscience that probably don't get integrated into the whole. So that's actually an interesting question. One of the ways that we study consciousness is by asking ourselves what kinds of brains um, are actually less conscious. And we start talking to other neuroscientists to bring them all together. And then we look across all those brains to see what they have in common. Wouldn't you so, just, couldn't you just study politicians and just get a good sample size? <laughs> Notice that was a nonpartisan comment, yeah. just to be clear. Yeah, of course it's nonpartisan. Um, <laughs> if they would let us, we could, we could throw some electrodes on their brain. Um, but, you know, we could actually image their emotions based on their facial expressions. And that, would, that alone would tell us a lot. Ooh. Um, but, but going back to the consciousness thing, uh, as an anesthesiologist, I give people a bunch of drugs and those drugs actually remove their consciousness and, and they depress the brain so much that the state of being anesthetized is closer to being in a coma than it is to being asleep. Um, that being said, we collaborate with sleep 
neuroscientists and sleep neurologists and coma neuroscientists and neurologists. And we look to see what all of those brains have in common. And that's where we get sort of this cross-disciplinary look at human consciousness. Um, and do you want me to tell you what those things are? I do want to know. And I also, I want to know yeah. how, how you're incorporating all these other fields because consciousness is a very broad thing. Yeah. Like, well, I'm this type of neuroscientist and I'm looking at consciousness. <laughs> Did you notice there's other people looking at it? Because I'm a little concerned that we get these tiny little tunnel vision views on consciousness that are, are very bound by the edges of a field and you're looking at a very big thing. So, so I just, I'm curious in your study of consciousness, how do you bring in stuff that isn't specific to your, your uh, segment of neuroscience? It, it's an interesting question and it's, um, it depends on whether you're doing experimental science or if you are considering the question on a lot larger level. When you do experimental science, you have to, to some extent, control for certain things. So you can't just bring in everything as a thought experiment because yeah. um, well, you, yeah, you just wouldn't be able to control variables. So you wouldn't be able to say, hey, this leads to that. You, but you can do controlled experiments and then you can extrapolate out to sort of this, this larger world and you can imagine and dream up new ways of, of testing things. Uh, so in the, so let, let's look specifically at what I do. Um, yeah. I actually put electrodes on people's heads Me too. when I'm manipulating their level of consciousness. And then I look to see what those brainwaves tell us about people's brains and which neural networks I'm turning on and off um, and how different drugs that we give tweak those networks. Uh, and then you can look at some other interesting questions like are parts of the brain connected or disconnected and how are they calculating information? And is there some like causality uh, and linkages and time and space between different parts of the brain that are broken or, or reestablished? When you want to bring that out to the larger picture, you need to then start to say, what, what does it actually mean to be conscious? And the reason I like the studies that I do is because it allows you to manipulate the level of consciousness mm. without having to first in advance commit to some sort of philosophical definition of, of what it is. Everybody agrees that a person who's brain dead is not conscious anymore. People agree that when I give you a drug to make your consciousness depressed, you don't actually feel surgeons cutting into you. You're not listening to conversations in a room. You're not speaking any longer. And so I can use these really, really basic things that we know about brains to look across brains. And then... Once we begin to understand what those things are in common, we can, we can start to incorporate some of these other questions like, uh, what does meditation do? Does it make you less conscious or super conscious? Uh, what do things like um, ecstatic states do? What are flow states? Um, and what other kinds of drugs do when they alter consciousness? So it, it gives you sort of a, a framework on which to hang all these different pieces. Uh, and that's where you can begin to go cross-platform. About 22 years ago or so, somewhere around there, um, I did my first EEG neurofeedback session, and I've had uh -huh. one to 10 EEG machines at home ever since then. And at a certain point, I realized that doing brain surgery on myself might not be a good idea. <laughs> so I actually have a small neuroscience institute that does executive brain training um, in Seattle. And that stuff has radically changed my life. So I'm, I'm totally with you there. But when you talk about someone who's more conscious versus less conscious, but you haven't defined consciousness, what's our scale? Because I'm looking for like guru level people so I can get their brain waves and say, make my brain wave more like theirs. Take the people who come through my program. Let's look at what a sample size of flow states look like and let's make it a programmable state. Not that we program it, but we show your brain how you turn it on. Um, how, how do you know someone who's 80% conscious versus fully enlightened, if that's such a thing, versus 50% conscious? Is there a scale you use? Yeah, but we don't use it on the level of enlightenment because enlightenment is actually a pretty... Um, it's not defined. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to define. And, and, you know, there are people who are more enlightened on different axes than other people. Yeah. Um, you know, you can be more enlightened um, in terms of empathy, but maybe not in terms of actually being able to control your own inner emotions. Yeah. So there's, there's different axes even within, in that world. So I, I think it's worth mentioning now how 
neuroscientists have begun to define consciousness because then we can start to fill in some of these um, different things. So imagine that consciousness is not a single thing and and let's create a two axis system. Uh, The person who first uh, started talking about this uh, is, is a researcher named Steve Lorries. He's from Belgium and he's a coma neuroscientist. Um, And the way he describes it is, well, you can, either look on an axis, let's call it, if people are imagining in the podcast, there's an x-axis. So that's the flat one. That's the horizontal line. And let's call that the level of consciousness. And then let's look at a y-axis. And there we're going to talk about the content of consciousness. These are the kinds of things that you think about when you're saying, oh, somebody is solving a complex math problem, um, or someone is dreaming, um, or someone has actually gone into a state where they're driving and they have no idea how they got from one place to another. So that axis contains all that information. And what you can do is you can take all these different states of consciousness and plot them in this two-dimensional space. And most of the states you think about will fall on this diagonal line. Um, So being awake and aware, you've got a high level of consciousness, but you also have a lot of content there. Uh, When you're brain dead, you're way, way down at the other end. You're kind of at the origin where the two axes first meet. Most things fall along that diagonal. So when you begin to fall asleep and get drowsy, you shift down a little bit on both axes. And then when you really fall asleep into deep, slow wave sleep, you fall further. When you're anesthetized, you go even further down. When you're comatose, you're somewhere close to that brain dead point. But then there's these interesting states and they don't fall on this diagonal any longer. Um, Imagine something like the dream state. In the dream state, your level of consciousness is pretty depressed, but the content is really, really high. And if you actually measure electrical activity in the brain, a a dreaming brain looks a lot like an awake brain. It has that kind of electrical activity. Uh, What we haven't done in that two-axis system yet is, say, put someone who's, um, let's call them an elite meditator, who's been meditating for a long time, to see where both the content and level of consciousness are and, and how they compare to other kinds of states. I, I predict actually, while the content may go down, the level may go up, if that makes sense. And so that kind of a state would also fall off a normal diagonal in this two axis system. We, we could go, uh, we could go pretty deep on that. I, I mean, I, <laughs> it depends on the school of meditation, but I've had the great mm-hmm. fortune to, scan the brains of some very high level guru people, you know, adored by hundreds of thousands to millions of people, uh, people who spent you know, 30 plus years in advanced practices and things. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly can, can look at differences in alpha and theta order Delta and all, all these things, uh, gamma brain waves uh, that are high in, in Zen monks, for instance. And, most of those within a few days with the right feedback, you can train a brain to at least have rudimentary controls on some of those. But someone who has experience meditating, usually it's like if you've skateboarded, you can probably learn to ride a bike better, but someone, someone who does that can get more control. But there is a huge lack of science uh, around you know, that, that definition of consciousness and what are the benefits of this state versus another state, uh, which gets beyond your two-axis system. But it, it feels to me like we've got Elon Musk out there saying, I'm going to do neural lace, which to me is like the worst idea I've ever heard of. Um, well, because I've studied implant materials and immune systems uh, and uh, biofilms. But anyway, I, I digress. So if we're going to put stuff in there, maybe we should understand what those states are and the stuff we can pick up from our skin before we start sticking things through the skin to walk around with. Am I just being too conservative here? I mean, you're a human augmentation thinker, futurist at the Singularity Institute. Yeah. I, you know, pick I, I think another problem with, with doing that is uh, right now, we don't have a lot of ways to get those kinds of devices and implants in the brain until we crack open the skull. And yeah. the average human being walking around is not going to be submitting themselves to like a Dremel tool. I, I <laughs> would. But, uh, well, um, <laughs> actually, I probably wouldn't. No, you run the risk of infection That's and why, bleeding yeah. and stroke and all sorts of other things happening in your brain. So it's not just your willingness to add basically cybernetic parts to yourself. It's what's the risk. And that is the most beautiful and eloquent organ you have. So, um, you know, it's something that you 
don't want to undertake lightly. Um, recently, a group in Melbourne actually found a way to deploy brain-machine interfaces by actually going through large vessels in the groin and sending up metal electrodes on a wire cage ah. actually through central veins. And there is a vein that overlies the motor strip. And so you can actually deploy an entire cylindrical electrode array that can function like a brain-machine interface without having to crack open the brain at all. You don't need neurosurgery. That's kind of a cool thing. And I, I think that's going to be something that's more likely to happen in the future. But you got to imagine that that electrode array is what? It's going to start sticking to the walls of those blood vessels. Are we ever going to be able to get it out if we need to? Or is it going to cause this huge bleed in the brain? Not sure. Do you worry about voltage-gated calcium ion channels in cells with EMFs inside the brain affecting mitochondrial function? Do you realize that that's not really been tested? When we actually test, um, like go back to the optogenetics thing, when yeah. we insert these ion channels, one of the things we do is we actually look for temperature changes and overheating. Um, when the initial optogenetic studies were done, they did a lot of controls and they actually looked for things like um, the neurons changing shape, neurons dying, neurons burning up, things like that. Um, mitochondrial function was never looked at at that point. So, so they didn't evaluate it. It's, there's certainly not a heating effect, but there's there's a calcium influx that tends to happen because when you get an electrical field, the, that one ion gate opens up, according to a couple of different people I interviewed over over time. But it's it's not something that you would see except maybe over a long period of time. If mitochondrial function goes down, you get more inflammation in the neuron. It, it's not going to die right away. And it's certainly not going to burst like popcorn in a microwave, uh, which is sort of what people like to think about. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't see that happening. If anything, a neuron would just slowly degenerate. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I'd still say that the link between um, EN, EMF, um, calcium channels, and mitochondria is probably not as solid as you might think. but. Because you have to understand, okay, there's a thing. I, I should believe in delivering energy from the outside. I think that's oh. the future. Oh, me, but, me too, by the way. Pulsed EMF, light. <laughs> uh, I've been doing the Russian sleep machine for 20 mm -hmm. years. Oh, this stuff all works. It's real. There's no question about no, it. No, no. The question is how deep can it go, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Because um, when you deliver energy from the outside, the surface of the brain is going to receive a lot more than deeper structures. And so there you have to start modulating the amount of energy, the amplitude, the frequency to actually modulate structures you're really interested in. Yeah. Um, and so how, the actual mapping of, of all this stimulation isn't entirely clear to me yet. Uh, people are working on this, like focused ultrasound. They used to think um, couldn't get as deep as they wanted, but actually we're getting ultrasound and even potentially infrared deeper into the brain than we had thought before. Um, and you can actually manipulate neurons now using things like ultrasound sound waves. That makes me so happy. I haven't tried <laughs> ultrasound like that. I did do ketamine and uh, the high-powered uh, uh, direct magnetic, very focused frequencies uh, with a psychiatrist down in San Diego, David Pfeiffer, who was on the show. Did um, you do it simultaneously or in uh, sequence? I I did the uh, magnetic stuff first, and then I did the ketamine right afterwards, but not at the mm. same time. Uh, it, uh, it was mostly just a function of time and being able to get it on video uh, for bulletproof listeners. Um, but did you record your brainwaves when you did it? Unfortunately, no, he didn't have an EEG yeah. set up. And I, if I thought of it, I could have brought my 24 channel yeah. set up from 40 years of Zen, but I did, that would have actually been cool. You must've seen ketamine and ketamine is one of those like PTSD. I use numbers. ketamine all the time in the operating room. So I actually have a, um, a good number of brains with an EEG that's been recorded frontally that are on ketamine. And you can see, um, it's really interesting because you see this, uh, basically these higher frequencies get kicked up using ketamine. And one of the problems is a lot of the algorithms that are used to try to figure out how conscious or unconscious you are uh, can't deal with ketamine because ketamine makes it look like the brain is waking up. But it's wow. in fact an, an even deeper gravity well than it was before. So you're talking gamma or even like 100 hertz kind of things? No, it's mostly beta activity. Actually. Beta. Yeah, but what happens is when you are anesthetized, uh, your brain looks a lot like it does in sort of deep slow wave sleep. So it's got a lot of delta 
and it has this sort of um, alpha low beta rhythm, but nothing like what ketamine does. So, it's, so it doesn't fit in the mold. So people don't know. No, I, I believe that. it's because it stimulates a different receptor, right? So ketamine talks to something called the NMDA receptor, mm. whereas most of our anesthetic drugs, most of things like, like alcohol itself or Valium, most of the drugs we, we self-medicate with manipulate something called the GABA receptor. Yep. And GABA is an inhibitory receptor. It lets chloride into neurons. And so it kind of depresses their, a lot of their firing patterns. But ketamine is really, really different in terms of its target. Um, the other drug that also targets the NMDA receptor is um, nitrous oxide. It's uh, laughing gas. Yeah. So, and it does the same thing. It actually causes this really buzzy state to happen in the brain. What about uh, the other two big fancy ones, uh, psilocybin or MDMA or LSD? Um, all of those are, they talk about those in the context of consciousness. They're all being studied now for the first time in 30 years. Yeah. Are you scared of this or are you happy about this? Oh, I'm not scared of it at all. I personally haven't measured brains like that, um, okay. mostly because I don't, I don't use um, LSD or, or angel dust or any of these other psychedelics in my so, practice. Um, not, not only that, I mean, you're going to be going to space, so you would never touch these things because that would be bad. I totally get you there. <laughs> but... You know, I've actually encouraged people who um, are using drugs to actually do something similar to what you do, which is to record these states using an EEG. Um, and there are, there must be some older studies out there with high density EEG in these different states. Probably. Um, so, so here's the thing that makes psychedelics really valuable, actually, in, in therapeutic practices. Your, your brain is kind of, a, it's, it's already wired in a particular way. When you learn something, you lay it down in, in, into a network. And then that network gets reactivated with a similar set of inputs over and over. And that's why it's really hard to break a habit because it's, it's metabolically expensive. You have to break pre-existing connections in order to form new ones. What psychedelics do is they kind of subvert that process in as soon as you take that psychedelic they are actually changing connections immediately within neural networks. And what happens is if you couple taking a psychedelic with other kinds of input, so let's say you have PTSD and you're in a session with a therapist, and that therapist is actually able to take you on a guided journey where you relive maybe the trigger for that PTSD memory and you do it with a psychedelic on board, you can actually lay down different responses in your neurons to the old triggering memory. This is why it's actually useful for breaking habits. It's why it's great for all kinds of therapy. Um, those effects are actually mediated also in different parts of the brain and some of the short-term effects. So, but, but psychedelics are incredibly useful that way. And I think we're finding more and more places that psychedelics are actually going to be helping people in these different spaces. You, as a futurist, uh, have talked about uh, this idea of human augmentation. I am philosophically in favor of human augmentation, but as a computer scientist uh, guy, I, I think it's kind of absurd to throw away your computer and get a new piece of hardware when you have code that's wasting 75% of the processor you have now. And it feels like I don't really want to get rid of my current hardware. I'll maintain it well. I don't really want to get rid of that until I've made full use of it, as in it's running at full capacity and it's maxed out and I need more capacity. Then it's like, okay, I, I want a robot arm on the back of my head or something. Um, or a USB, uh, you know, 132 gigs of memory kind of thing. When, where do you draw the line on upgrading uh, the human brain? Well, it was limited to the brain versus all of humans. Uh, between making what we have work better and adding something external to your brain. Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, they're really, uh, let's push that back even further. Making what you have work better versus fixing a diseased process, right? That's Ooh. actually originally where we started from. Absolutely. All these brain-machine interfaces, I mean, um, people like to say that they are the first cyborgs and things like that. They're actually not. It's the patient's who've been having implants for a long time, let's mm. say to combat paralysis or, you know, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, that kind of thing. These kinds of people were actually the first cyborgs that we really had. 
But what we're doing there is replacing something that's gone bad. And that's not quite the same as augmentation, but it's on that same pathway. Um, when you start adding things to yourself and everything was already functioning pretty well, um, that's a different step. And let's look at something like working memory. Uh, it turns out you can actually non-invasively modulate the brain and improve your capacity to remember things. That's in Game Changers, by the way, my new book. I have to say, there's a whole <laughs> chapter on that. Was yeah. on that. Thank you for saying that because people still say you can't do it. We have a real neuroscientist, like professor, like badass, who just said you can improve working memory. All right, sorry. You can. It, it, it's not my area of research. So there's a, I, I give a shout out to all my colleagues in the world who are actually doing this kind of research. Um, but they're trying it both in old and young brains. Yes. Um, now, just imagine you take somebody, not an Alzheimer's patient, but just mm -hmm. take a normal person and you deliver non-invasive neuromodulation and you start to improve their memory. So far, the effect reverts back, but we may find a way to make that more permanent. And once these changes become permanent, now you've created sort of a second level of human. You've created an extremely elite human, right? I mean, what kind of capacity have you given them when suddenly their memory is better than most of the populations. Um, and then there's like the third kind, and that is adding things that you never came with in the first place. Uh, and here, here I refer to that whole movement of people that, that are inserting RFID chips in themselves, um, people who are actually inserting gravitational sensors in their feet so they can sense seismic activity like earthquakes and other kinds of vibration. People are, are implanting magnets so that they can tell where true north is. They're going to be like migrating birds. I did that for, for six weeks. It wasn't an implant, but I wore an ankle bracelet that vibrated true north. This was about eight, 10 years ago. It was How did that? It was creepy, huh? It was, it was after a, a couple of weeks until mm. the soldering broke because I didn't solder it very well. Um, I, I have no sense of direction. I never have. I'm completely visual based. And uh -huh. I started to know which way north was, which was a new sense for me. And I wish I had resoldered the thing before I lost it. But um, it actually, it, something happened. I, I can't explain it. But it yeah, wasn't. no, no, you bring up the greatest point. Yeah. No, no, you rewire your brain, right? So that wasn't a permanent implant, but yeah. it's, it's the same idea. If you add a new sense or a new organ, you actually need a new part of your brain to be devoted to receiving that information and processing it. Um, if you use something like sensory substitution, so if you're a blind person and you begin to use your sense of hearing or taste or touch to move through the world, those parts of your brain become bigger and they take over. So let's say you implant a new organ, a new sense organ. You are now driving plasticity in those people's brains and at some point, you have to ask, are those people still human? And you ask me if there's a line. I don't actually know where that line is. I mean, when you're correcting something that's gone bad in a diseased person, okay, maybe you might want to argue they're still human. But when you start augmenting people, whether it's giving them a boost in what they already had or adding something completely new, I think you're actually pushing evolution in a way that natural selection never, never expected. Right? Because I mean, who expected that kind of environmental pressure? And then you got to say, can you pass it on to your kids? Oh, it, it's you probably can with training. I mean, my kids get wired up to uh, electrodes on a regular oh, basis. Oh, no, no. I mean, like, let's say we make you smarter. Okay. Let's say we start stimulating on. your brain. Yeah. Do you modify your epigenome? Probably. In such a way that you can give it to future generations. And that's something. That's also interesting because modifying your germline is, is a big deal, right? Because we've got CRISPR now. We, we edit genes. And that seems to be, when you were talking about lines in the sand, that seems to be at least people give lip service on an international level to that's the line in the sand. You don't CRISPR people's gene, like germlines. It, it seems like BS to me. I mean, there's, there's risk from, from CRISPR, but my first book in 2011 was called The Better Baby Book. And it's like, hey, here's everything you can do to your baby to have a smarter baby in this generation with better genes that get handed off to your grandkids and probably seven generations down, but we know for sure three generations down. So you want to upgrade your germline? eat this before you get pregnant, pull this stuff out of the body and do these, whatever, 10 things. And this is what we did for my own kids. My wife was infertile. I met her. She's a, a Karenska trained physician. 
Uh, and so we restored fertility and then we kind of went for the epigenetic switches and we threw all of them in the direction of making our grandkids healthier too. So, I, okay, you could already do it. And what's the difference if you decide to do it in a Petri dish somewhere or if you just do it on your dinner plate? Yeah, so <laughs> again, you bring up a good question. Where is that line? Um, I don't know. If but you start <laughs> to if you start to edit um, genomes, though, let's say you are trying to change eye color, hair color, height, physical strength. Um, I don't know what's what's to say. It, you know, it gets back to doping, right? In sports, mm-hmm. um, you can take steroids. You can t- take epigen. All that steroids and epigen do is they kick up a system that already naturally exists in your body, right? Growth hormone. They kick up things like the ability for red blood cells to carry more oxygen. You're kicking up actually natural processes, but we have decided that that somehow tilts the playing field in favor of the athletes that dope versus the ones that don't. So the only solution is all athletes don't dope, or we have all of them augment themselves however they want. As long as they tell everyone else what they're doing, they should be allowed to augment. Because what what they, we also allow that seems entirely unfair is we allow athletes to train in different ways, which isn't fair at all. So all athletes should have to lay in bed unless they're competing and all eat exactly the same number of calories per gram. Otherwise, it's not a level playing field. I mean, seriously, how is this even fair? Why do the athletes who can afford like top top trainers at the best facilities, why do they get an unfair advantage and the other ones don't? So this this whole doping thing just pisses me off. Like, if you're going to do it, just tell us what you did so I can learn from it and you can learn from it and our kids can learn from it. And then we'll have much more exciting sports matches. All right. There now I just pissed off all my pro athlete friends. Sorry, guys. You should all be on testosterone. If you're over 35, you'll last longer. And for you women, same thing, just different doses. All right. There, I said well, that too. You know, there's other things too in terms of drawing that line of sand. Okay. Like, let's say you were a woman and you have cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Shouldn't we correct your germline so your children don't have it? Or if you have Huntington's disease, things that are autosomal dominant that you're, you know, that you have a very high likelihood, 50% chance of passing on to your kids. Um, you had mentioned um, sending, you know, space travel, something that's near and dear to my heart. Well, yeah. what if we could actually edit genomes, let's say of future generations and make them say more radiation tolerant? Um, wouldn't it increase the chance for the human race to survive if we send them into space? without mutating, developing cancer and dying early, growing like four eyeballs. Or, or just having your brain shrink dramatically because your cerebral spinal fluid gets uh, to be oh, a little bit. <clears throat> that's different. That's microgravity. And it is. whether or not we can, I've been thinking about that with a couple of friends, whether or not you could make some sort of you know gene level changes or actually just in the proteome, right? So the expression of the right proteins coming from, that are transcribed from your RNA to help people better combat microgravity. That, that stimulus seems to be a little bit harder to deal with than the radiation one. It seems to me, and, and tell me if I, I might piss you off and a lot of other people, but getting to Mars isn't that hard. Surviving the trip and surviving on Mars is really hard. So we should be spending as much money on re-engineering humans to live in space and on Mars as we are spending on ships to get there. Otherwise, there's no point. Is that radical or no? No, I think a lot of people are thinking about this. I would say that probably um, maybe our crops that we take with us, that's probably the first thing. In fact, we use CRISPR in agriculture has been one of like the main targets so we can feed more of the planet. If we can CRISPR organisms that will survive on Mars or on asteroids or in a station that's spinning, yeah, I think we have a much better chance of survival. Everything is ethically fraught. I mean, <laughs> there's going to be no way around this, right? We, we already have these technologies that make people feel like they're playing God. Well, we have them, so we need to start talking about them. I just spent uh, uh, a while interviewing and having dinner with uh, Andrew Herr, uh, who spent 10 years with the Department of Defense looking at augmented soldier programs and things like mm-hmm. that. And he said on the interview, if memory serves, uh, that he was uh, he was convinced that somewhere on the planet, some governments are doing this stuff already. Oh, yeah, they absolutely uh, are. 
and, and I mean, I'm, I was going to say, you, you may have knowledge you can't talk about it, or you may, but if they're doing it and it's not allowed in the US or Canada or, or somewhere else, I can tell you if you put on your 100-year hat, what's going to happen and it's not pretty. Yeah. So isn't there an ethical requirement to do it if someone's doing it? Because otherwise, like over time, we stop evolving? In some sense, you're right. And in the other sense, Han, that's the argument that was made for nuclear proliferation, right? If so-and-so is building nuclear weapons, well, they're going to get ahead and if they're a rogue state and the whole planet's screwed. What what happened is the the countries with nuclear weapons became the very powerful ones because they had them. So the countries with augmented populations or maybe just augmented soldiers, if you want to be all cyberpunk about it, well, they're going to be the ones with all the power 100 years from now. So it seems like it could just be a, a you know nation state thing, or it could just be a fundamental human right. Like it's my biology, let me upgrade it. If you get in my way, you're an enemy of humanity, and I'm going to use my laser eyes to you know burn your legs out from under you. I, I'm of that camp where this is a fundamental right. If I want to stick screwdrivers in my eyes because I'm dumb, then that's my own my own fault, right? Um, but if you try to stop human progress, you're probably not on the right side of history. Am I too radical? Um, no, no, I think that's probably going to be the way everything falls out. But the one thing that's really important, I think you mentioned it before, is that it's it's going to be a fundamental human right as long as everyone has access. If, if it becomes this thing where only people who have money, wealth, resources, or political influence basically get access. Oh, you mean like they- cell phones? <laughs> oh, wait. Well, actually, cell phones is a really great example of democratized technology. Exactly. Right? But if you go back to when we were young, I'm guessing you and I are about the same age. I might be a little older than you. Um, but I can tell you when it was $40,000 for a cell phone in your trunk and $25 a minute and you saw someone in their you know, Mercedes driving by with it, you're like, that jerk, who do they think they are, those rich jerks? And now it's not like that. And I think every technology we've talked about on the show, everyone I've ever talked about on Bulletproof Radio in 500 episodes, all of these are going to be available for five bucks 20 years from now. I, I think the abundant mindset, yeah says that that's going to be the case. But I will say that when technology is powerful, um, there are people who try to at least hold on to that kind of power by making certain things exclusive. And the question is, for how long? The movie that always comes to mind is Gattaca, right? I mean, that movie is like over 30 years old. But once you... Once you create a race of um, genetically superior people and they have time to procreate, um, you can actually build up a large enough number of these people that they can actually control the rest of the population. And so I'm not saying that the technologies aren't going to get faster, cheaper, better, but you it is worth looking out for how the technologies are being developed. So we make sure that these technologies are available to everyone. Um, you know, if we control the means of distribution, I mean, food, for God's sakes, that should be so cheap. Right? We throw out most of our food. Why are people malnourished? Because we have like completely screwed up distribution systems on this planet. That shouldn't be that way. And that's what I want us to keep thinking about as we develop these technologies, that we, we, don't, we don't make it so that people who don't have resources can't access them easily. So it goes away the smartphone rather than food. Yeah, uh, it's a great analogy. And it's one of the reasons that, that I chose the word biohacking for, for what I do the hackers are the ones who wrote open source software. Like if you're buying software and you don't know what it does, that's bad. If you could just see what it does, maybe that would be better. And so by identifying the technologies, ones we just talked about that allow you to change your brain or someone else to change your brain without your consent or awareness, if you know the technology exists and you know you could use it and maybe choose to use it, I think the world's a better place than if some shadowy bad people do it. And by the way, I usually don't believe that much in shadowy bad people. I believe in emergent behavior from complex systems that looks like shadowy bad people. But most of the the billionaire types I've met and the people who have the means to do this are actually not like that. They're they're trying to make the world a better place. They don't know how and we, no one knows why it keeps breaking like our food system. So I, I don't think Mr. Smithers is out there doing bad things. No, no, I think, um, but here, look, if you, if you somehow limit the means of production or access, yeah. you'll develop pro- pro- uh, probably a black market, right? People yeah, sell their organs on black markets. We need to be just vigilant, whether it's an emergent property of systems or there are bad actors, it doesn't really matter. These systems will form. And what I don't want to see, and this is a very controversial topic, but 
What I don't want to see is people who want procedures who go have back alley procedures like abortions and can't get access to them, right? Uh, we don't want to create a system that sort of incentivizes a black market or a back alley system. We want a no, system no. where everyone has safe and easy access to all of these different tools. Um, and what that's going to look like in the end, I, I'm not sure. Um, are you are you hopeful? I mean, you are deep in this yeah. stuff, deeper than I yeah. am. Yeah, yeah, I, I am hopeful. Um, I've also seen a lot of technology abuse, so I have this sort of side of me that just is like, you can't just sit there and be sort of wishful and hopeful and not take action, right? What is technology abuse, the way you're talking about it? Um, again, it's this sort of idea of controlling the means of production or access because of primary or secondary gain. Here, let's use a different example. Let's just talk about climate change for a second. Um, that's kind of a runaway system now, right? There are people who seem to be controlling this narrative because a very, very small group of people is going to benefit in the very, very short term by preventing the world from taking action. We could have done something 20, 30 years ago. There's a lot of data that shows that we, we knew that this was coming. I, I'd like to see... I'd like to see people not just kind of sitting back and assuming that technology is going to develop the right way because there are enough smartphones in the hands of people in villages in Africa. I want people to get more active and say, all the technology we develop, we need to be thinking about what the implications are for their ethical development, but also the democratized access to these technologies and then play a really active role. So these things don't fall into the hands of a select group of people. Uh, I absolutely support that. And if it makes you feel any better, at the XPRIZE, after you left, uh, I helped uh, to fund the creation of an XPRIZE to just suck carbon out of the air. Yeah, awesome. Carbon neutral, just like vacuum that stuff up and build yeah. works out of it and do it with solar power. It's probably a way. And you know, if the climate deniers are right, hey, it didn't, it's not going to do anything. It doesn't matter then, right? But uh, I'm pretty sure that we have a carbon problem. So We have I'm a carbon problem. <laughs> like, all the data I'm looking at says that. Oh, my God. There's, <laughs> as much as scientists can agree on anything, they agree on this. But that's also kind of scary. And uh, I, I think that we have a carbon problem, like I just said it. But there was also a, a strong consensus uh, that you know the earth uh, did not revolve around the sun. And so consensus in science is kind of scary. The, the calories in, calories out consensus, which was totally like, destructive of human health. So consensus is frightening, but I can tell you this looks pretty important. And whether you think man did it or volcanoes or sunshine or something, I don't care if we vacuum the stuff out of the air. I don't, you, you guys can argue about whose fault it is. I don't really care. We'll just fix the problem because the problem is real. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real problem. Um, but, but that's where, you know, you asked me about that balance between being hopeful and just kind of letting things happen. And I actually think that everybody has to take a kind of an active role in the development or evolution of new technologies. It isn't good enough to sit around passively and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that'll just happen the way it ought to. Do you have kids? Uh, I don't. I have eggs on ice. <laughs> Are you going to hack them before you fertilize them? Um, possibly not, but I would like to actually screen them yeah. before, before implant. I I have met a global elite wealthy person who went through and removed all genetic issues that he was aware of from his children. Can you share names? I will not share names. Um, but <laughs> he, he told me about it. He said, oh, my, we mm -hmm. I forget what genes, like Huntington's or something. I, I don't remember what it was. Um, but it, yeah, a couple of things that were pretty bad. There was a reasonable chance of his kids getting it. And he said, well, why don't I just permanently remove that from my family? So he did. Yeah. Uh, and so this is happening. And I, it kind of makes me mad that this isn't something you can do, but the, the more Eastern side of me who understands epigenetically mother nature, for lack of a better word, the system of, of your mitochondria interacting with the world decides which egg drops based on the environment you're in. And if you kind of bypass that part of, of the system, we don't know what that does. And yeah. there's some biological rationale for the selection of the egg and no one knows what it is. So if you're just going to go in and freeze some eggs and then you decide to implant one, is it the best egg for the environment? God knows. Yeah, we, we, we don't. In fact, there's probably good data that says, well, it, you know, when you 
when you freeze eggs instead of embryos, you get an even lower yield, right? So eggs that are frozen um, that are already starting to divide do better. But we we don't screen um, until that thing has implanted and starts to really develop into a fetus. And I think that ought to change. I think Bob Hariri might agree with me on that one. Um, I also think that, hey, banking our stem cells much earlier than we do. I mean, I, we're going to get to the point where all children have their stem cells banked, all children born. But right now, us adults, most of us don't have any cord blood to go back to or stem cells from our placenta. Um, we ought to be really looking into that because talk about rebuilding and regenerating our organs. Yeah. My, my stem cells are banked, uh, but they're you know, 42 year old or something. I want right. to do my kids, but I don't want to give my kids liposuction because you know when you're 11 or nine, that's just mean. It hurts. Right? So it, that, that's a really tough one. Uh, like where you're going to get the stem cells, like yank a tooth that's still doing well and, and extracting culture. There's a, like, there just is no pain-free way to get stem cells from a kid, maybe some bone marrow, you know, when they're knocked out. Uh, but ugh, I, I don't know, that's all pretty invasive and risky. And I don't think I'm going to do that to my kids, but I'm with you. I wish I had to save their cord blood at, mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. There wasn't good data that said it was good for anything. Uh, when my kids were born, it was very yeah. expensive. So I'm like, I'm not doing it. The risk or the the reward versus cost isn't there. And, and hey, you have to store it too. So remember we were talking about democratizing access. Yeah. Is everybody going to be able to afford the freezer costs? I could have to do It was right. thousands of dollars a year. And I'm like, I'm the sole breadwinner in my family. That's not going to work. Right. Uh, so decided to so, yeah, buy good food. Anyway, but, but you see what I'm saying? Like this yeah. is the kind of thing where um, we have to think about the implications of these things because Technically, everybody's got cord blood, but that doesn't mean that everybody can afford to bank it. So I'd like to see us thinking about how to make all this kind of technology available to everyone rather than just some select elites. Well, we uh, we agree on that. And uh, I believe that this is one of those international treaty fundamental human right things. Yeah, I and do too. Visibility is the first thing we need. So if you know a country is going to be creating upgraded germlines, no problem. You just have to say you're doing it so we all know, and then we can all decide what we're going to do, and we can decide to evolve ourselves more mm-hmm. rapidly than we otherwise would, uh, or not, uh, but to have it happening in hidden pockets of wealth or you know, yeah. secret government labs uh, where Wolverine is coming out. Um, that pisses me off because I seriously want those Wolverine powers. Um, <laughs> so anyway, that's just me. But you probably do too. Um, certain kinds of powers, yeah, I'd love. But hey, going back to your the whole thing where you were talking about meditation to begin with. Yeah. Um, there are just some really ancient things that we can do to actually Ooh. completely hack ourselves. And um, there's, it's correlative right now, but there is some data that's now showing that meditation increases telomere length. In yes. other words, the things that protect your DNA. So you can increase your longevity um, just by meditating. Another one is, um, Meditation is actually, again, correlative. It's not causative. They haven't done that yet. But people who meditate, you actually see more gray matter in almost every area of the brain that they've put. And they don't show all that age-related shrinkage or atrophy in brains. 87th percentile hippocampal size. Just uh, just got to say that. Uh, (laughs) Hey, I thought you didn't know where you were in the world. You know (laughs) that you use your hippocampus to like navigate, right? (laughs) Maybe it's those magnets. It's something or another, but that's the other problem is um, if you're a, a, a biohacker, brain hacker, mm-hmm. you're results driven. And if you're a neuroscientist, you're data driven, you want the map and I want the results. So I'm willing to do 10 things. And if eight of them didn't work, okay, did I get the result I wanted? If so, hooray, then let's go back and let's tease out which uh-huh. ones worked and which didn't. But in the meantime, I was getting old. I had cognitive issues in my thirties uh, and I, don't really want to wait around. Well, yeah. well, science gets figures out why I want the results and I'm willing to share. I get that. Uh, but it, it's, it's a very pragmatic, but also it, it makes scientists mad because like, I want to know the one variable. I'm like, sorry, it's an eight variable problem. I, I did 16 and I got eight of them that worked and I'm happy. Uh, is there an answer to that? Is science going to get around that? I controlled for all effects, kind of like self story we tell ourselves. 
you're not you're not going to get around it in an N of one. There's there's no way. Oh, but, I don't mean an N of one. But like no, you no, said but there earlier. is a way that if you add yeah. all your data to like a growing database, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. You basically say I manipulated all these many variables, which mm-hmm. is much more like real life. Um, and you put as much as you can into that curated database. At some point, we might have a sufficient amount of data that algorithms can kind of come in and start to look to see what those relationships are. It, it's a data problem. So on you personally, we may not know if you manipulate a bunch of things at once. And, you know, I, um, I say this all the time, but I'm just like you in the sense that as a scientist, I kind of want to know what caused what, what gave rise to yeah. what, what variable did I tweak that led to this outcome? But that's not practical in real life. So when I, for instance, get sick, um, I usually don't go to a doctor. I go to an acupuncturist. I sometimes breathe um, or meditate and push like my breath into areas that are bugging me. I mm-hmm. visualize things. Um, and I try to get more sleep. Do, if I get better, do I know exactly which of those things actually helped? Probably not. Maybe they all did. Maybe only one of them did. It's kind of hard to know. It, it's one of those things about being alive. The other thing at the beginning of the show, you said something about how you, you know, you're controlling for variables and studies. How many of the studies that you've performed controlled for the phase of the moon? Uh, <laughs> none of them. Does the phase of no. the moon affect brainwaves? Um, I don't know. I've never measured that. It does. What, have you, what, you've seen uh, studies on that? Uh, I have. Well, the, the guys from- Or your uh, own. No, no, no. Uh, the Global Coherence Initiative, Roland McCready at Harvard. Uh-huh. Dude, I've been an advisor to heart math for like- Oh, I see. Days. So he's done some pretty out there stuff, but there are subtle changes there. And in terms of affecting brainwaves, if brainwaves are proxies for behavior, any emergency room doctor, including my wife, will tell you something happens on a full moon <laughs> uh, because the <laughs> ER fills up on a full moon. And, it, and it's, any cop will tell you the same thing. So we kind of know brainwaves drive behavior. So I'm willing to just give that one a, yeah, that exists. But the other thing in mouse studies- the outcome changes dramatically. If a woman feeds the mouse versus a man feeds the mouse, it changes what the mouse does. They don't control for that. So we have this fantasy mm-hmm. that we control for variables. But no, we, you're absolutely right. Right. <laughs> it, it actually, you bring up a really good point. It, it affects reproducibility of a lot of scientific yeah. experiments. Most of them are actually not as reproducible as we'd like. So if you give somebody the exact same protocol, they might come up with a different result. And so unless you have multiple studies done multiple ways that come to the same answer, sometimes it's, it's hard to say that um, A produced B. It's, it is, you're absolutely right. It's the way science is done. As circadian rhythms, we oh, do know gosh. markedly affect yeah. uh, a lot of our outcomes. And I would say that there is um, undoubtedly a circadian effect on my patients. Because in fact, when I anesthetize and what time of day, um, even sleep pressure, it, make, it makes a huge difference. So. Uh, that that's a good point. Uh, I just got back from uh, New York. Uh, I'm back on the West Coast, so I got back about two hours before our interview, and I was wearing my colored glasses, my True Dark glasses. Uh, it's one of the companies I started around circadian biology, specifically to solve jet lag and sleep issues. That, mm-hmm. That's worked. But everyone at X Prize was saying, "Dave, why are you wearing those weird yellow glasses?" I'm like, "Trust me, my brain works, and I can show you EEG studies now." And within 15 minutes of putting the glasses on, you see beta drop, you see alpha go up. Like, like it, these change your brain waves, like right then and there. And um, I, I guess is missing from all of this huge body of research. Like I said, what time of day was it? And surgery yeah. outcomes. And oh everything God. matters actually with yeah. time of day. Um, think also about like um, the quality of your sleep. And if you use like a smartphone or a device before you go to bed, yeah, uh, and all that blue light coming in is is really bad for um, almost making your brain think like it should be awake. So we do all sorts of weird things to alter our circadian rhythms, and most of them not so good. Now, as an astronaut wannabe, have you seen the lighting in the space station? Is that not just doubling the rate of brain decay in astronauts, or what? I don't know if it's doubling the rate of brain decay, but I would say that the entire environment of the station is not well optimized at the moment for, for human function in general. Um, for instance, I had a, another friend of mine who knows quite a lot about the space program, and she was telling me um, there's a lot of noise, just ambient noise, the kind of thing that, you know, if you were at home and you heard like someone's HVAC system going off and like revving up and then clattering and things. It would just spontaneously keep waking you up from sleep. 
well, the station is just full of noises like this constantly, wow. all these mechanical noises. So most of the astronauts or cosmonauts, whenever they think they're supposed to be sleeping, their sleep is really, really fragmented. And that is affecting human performance in space. Wow. Um, but it's probably affecting their longevity and probably contributing to possible, I don't know, dementia, you know, early in life, earlier in life than perhaps they should have it. We, we don't even have those longitudinal studies. But For, for everyone listening, uh, if you're sitting there going, oh my God, we're so screwed, look at it this way. If you're worried about having a job, these are not the kind of jobs that we're going to automate anytime soon. <laughs> Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done here. I mean, a lot of work. So go out and study brains and get a degree in neuroscience or psychopharmacology or something interesting like that because there's we're, we're barely scratching the surface. We haven't yet upgraded our biology. Uh, we don't know how to make an environment on the surface of the earth we can seal that we can live in. Uh, and like, there's just plenty of problems to solve. Just go pick one or three and just go with that. I have one more question for you, Divya. It's been a fascinating conversation. Someone comes to you tomorrow and says, based on everything you know, everything you've done, I want your three most important pieces of advice to help me perform better at everything I do as a human being. Three most important pieces of advice, what are they? Oh my God, they're stupidly simple. Good. Um, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I, no I, I want the three most important things. If they're simple, maybe I'll do them. Um, sleep eight hours a night. But not more, because you'll die more often, right? Not necessarily. If your body's asking for it, no, I'm serious. Your body's asking for it. Give it what it wants. Yeah. Um, exercise, 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 and exercise. You'll give birth to new brain cells and you'll protect every organ in your body and decrease, decrease your immune uh, inflammatory response. Um, and meditate. Actually, uh, well, the last thing is actually um, keep a gratitude journal. Oh, that's one of my top three. So. Yeah, there's a there's a strong association uh, between people who look around them and see all the things that they have to be grateful in for in their lives, and their general health, their immune function, their cognitive function, and longevity. This is why, by the way, if you're doing something meaningful online and a science troll attacks you, and a science troll is someone who just goes to PubMed and then posts the link and says, and that means you're a poopy head or whatever insult they want. <laughs> um, so those people, they're they're shortening their telomeres, they're damaging their brains, and like it does. And here's what you'd be grateful for: it costs you exactly half a second to click ban, delete, and they can't see what you say anymore, and you never have to hear from them again. And it takes them like <laughs> minutes that stuff. So you'd be grateful that the people like that are pruning their neurons out of existence. Like it is the coolest thing I've ever seen, and I'm personally <laughs> grateful for all of you, Angels. So bring it on. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. I don't know where that came from. Uh, that that was the dark side of gratitude. <laughs> and there's always a dark side. <laughs> now, uh, Divya, I love it that you brought those up. And those your answers there uh, mimic uh, Game Changers, my new book. I hired a statistician, and we went through 450 answers from people who are at the top of the field like you are and said, what are the commonalities in the advice that that these people have uh, that have helped them to get where they are in life. So instead of doing, well, this one person did it, I think I'll copy that. It's like, well, everyone agreed on these priorities. Here's the techniques that you might use to get there. So that if you have extra capacity for upgrading something about yourself, what would you do first to get the most ROI on it? And what came out of that was 46 different laws uh, for things mm. that matter. And that's why I'm telling everyone listening, if you haven't bought Game Changers yet, order it now. And you have a chance to win a bunch of cool stuff if you sign up online. But if you just order it, you're going to get like all 500 or so episodes all boiled down to four hours of your time. It's the best you could ever do. And Divya, of course, I'll send you a copy as well. Thank you. Well, thank you Thanks. for being on Bulletproof Radio. Yeah, it's been awesome. <laughs> you're, you're very hard to track down. You only oh. exist on LinkedIn. Uh, you don't have this weird thing called social media because it's bad for your brain. Is, is that why? Um, also makes it easier for... Um, groups like NASA to kind of troll me and say that something was posted that ought not have been. I try to keep a really clean presence out there on the internet. All right. Well, you've, you've succeeded. I'm glad we got to connect in person and <laughs> uh, at XPRIZE and that you're doing the work you're doing. It's really important that we have people thinking about it in as big a way as you are, especially around consciousness and brainwaves, because if we can do one thing to make the world a better place, it's bring people to a state of higher consciousness of what's going on inside them and around them. Because when you're aware of everything, you probably won't let it get as bad as you would if you didn't know about it. Yeah. 
Well, keep doing your work. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Divya Chander, and uh, you can only find her on LinkedIn. (laughs) The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.